Kyle Harper is the GT and Libby Blankenship Chair in the History of Liberty, Professor of Classics and Letters, Senior Advisor to the President, and Provost Emeritus at the University of Oklahoma. Harper's fourth book, Plagues Upon the Earth, Disease and the Course of Human History, is a global history of infectious disease spanning from human origins to COVID-19. It tells the story of humanity's long and distinctive struggle with pathogenic microbes. His scholarly work uses natural sciences, social sciences, and humanities to deepen our understanding of human expansion as a planetary force. Kyle Harper, welcome to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Hi, Mia. Thanks for having me. And so your book, Plagues Upon the Earth, could not be more timely. I'm wondering how far along were you into writing when the COVID struck and how did the pandemic influence your perspective on the history of infectious disease? Well, I'm, I'm an ancient historian by training. And in 2017, I published a book that looked at climate change and pandemic disease in the Roman Empire. And that got me completely hooked on the history of infectious disease, which is something I'd always been interested in. And I really am a historian, but I love biology and the sciences more generally. And so it was one of those times in life where sometimes when you finish one project, it just sort of leads right to the next one because you have interests and questions and ideas you want to you want to explore. And that's how it was with this. It was even before I finished writing about the Roman pandemics, I had all of these questions that I really wanted to answer. Why do pandemics happen at all? And why do they matter? And, and why do they happen when they happen? And why did the Romans get those germs? So I really immediately, I mean, the ink wasn't dry on that book. And I started working on a, a bigger global history of infectious disease. It would try and tell the, the whole story about how humans got the germs that we have and combine biology and history and try and be as global as possible. So not just focused in the Mediterranean, which is kind of where I usually have worked, but to really look broadly um, across the planet. And so I got a book contract for that right away and started working on it. I think that the book is the, the text of the manuscripts, not even due to the publisher yet. <laughs> this was going to take me five or six years to write. And obviously, this is just one of those surreal things that can happen in life. I was writing about what I thought would be a kind of abstruse academic topic, the history of pandemics, that I was hoping to use to be a different way of, of helping society see that there was going to be another pandemic when one hit. And so COVID upended everything. It made me write a lot faster, for better and worse, but it certainly provided a kind of urgency and relevance that I hadn't expected. Yes, completely. And you really tell the story, but we don't really think about how these, you know, pathogenic microbes, these things we, we don't even see, and even beyond that, like fungi and all these things, how they've really been an intimate part of human history from the beginning. And that's what you really help us to understand. And God, I didn't realize how full of germs we are, and how much it has affected our human history. Yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, microbes are ubiquitous. Most of them are harmless. Some of them are helpful. And uh, a, a small percentage of them, although relatively speaking, we have more germs than most animals, are harmful to us. And those ones that are harmful to us, they have a backstory. They are creatures of evolution. They came from somewhere. And humans have played an unusually large role in creating the opportunity for our germs to evolve. And it's e so easy for us to take for granted. I mean, leave COVID-19 aside, which really has affected our perspective about the history of disease. But 
most of human history, most people, most of the time died of infectious diseases. They of course didn't understand that microbes caused infectious disease particularly, but there are so many respiratory diseases and gastroenteric diseases and other really dramatic diseases like plague that have played such an overwhelming role in shaping the way human beings died and even the way that, that societies lived. And it's easy for us to take for granted uh, how amazing it is and how recent it is that humans have, have gained um, some level of control and that control is still incomplete because it's not shared evenly around the globe. And it's always incomplete because we can never completely be protected against infectious disease because evolution doesn't stop. They're going to respond to challenges that we create, but it's easy to take for granted how recent even the level of control we have has been gained. Yes, exactly. I mean, our, our advances, when you speak of challenges we create, over you know, 75% of the world's population live in major cities, of course, advances in transportation, you know, and of course, our just our ever-expanding population, this is really just ideal. This is like a, it's a ticking time bomb, you'd say. Yeah, I mean, and so the history of cities is really interesting. I, I think in terms of big picture history, but until very, very recently, cities were a dream for pathogens because they bring together human bodies, which are for a germ, just a exploitable uh, bunch of cells to take advantage of, and it we bring them close together. So there's a really deep link between the history of cities and the history of disease. And really it wasn't until the 19th century, so very late in the game, cities are five to 8,000 years old, depending on how you define a city. But it was only very recently that cities could even sustainably reproduce themselves so that birth rates were higher than death rates. That only happens in London, for instance, around 1800. It's even later that life expectancies are higher and disease burdens are lower in cities. That happens in the early 20th century because the countryside was a place where people were just further spread apart. And from a microbes perspective, that makes it harder to infect. And so the modern city is really a triumph of, of human ingenuity, of public investments in things like public health and sewage and particularly clean water, which again, we can take for granted too easily, but it is hard to provision to cities and is absolutely one of the most important health resources of all. So we're very privileged to live in, in cities where they're not just completely rife with infectious diseases, but that too is a product of history and it's a very recent phenomenon. Yeah, and what's amazing, I mean, as much as I'm so grateful, and, and I know you've written about this too, that I'm so grateful that we have these researchers in our current pandemic, you know, that we're already working on some of these issues who could come in and, and save so many lives. And yet it's, it's, no matter how advanced we are, sometimes we miss the simple things like not stocking the enough masks because it's not economically viable to do so and to keep it in, you know, storage and, you know, it doesn't suit our capitalistic imperatives. So it's that kind of, I mean, there's so many, you know, little things that we could do better. There are, yeah, I mean, it really, it really is amazing. And humans, 
you know, humans are just naturally often very bad at, at understanding risks and particularly when, when risks are spread unevenly. So they impact different people, different age groups, different socioeconomic groups, different countries and geographical groups, different health statuses. That adds an inevitable political dimension. So you kind of combine how bad people are often at understanding risk with the fact that some of the risks and impacts are very inequitable and the cost of preparing is inequitable. So it, it really is uh, just somehow frustrating, but also kind of foreseeable. But I also think as a historian, hindsight, um, hindsight's 2020. Um, and I, I can tell you when I was writing the, the book at first and thinking about how to warn about a new pandemic, you're thinking, how do I not sound crazy or kind of like a, you know, a, a negative, doomsday <laughs> preacher who's saying there's going to be this terrible thing when of course in retrospect we can now see things differently we should have been preparing and i think it's it's understandable that it can be hard to to foresee those misinformation has been a very big talking point these past few years with so much information going around through different sources has misinformation been a historical issue with how humans have dealt with disease i mean it's a great question it's a really big question where uh, I'd start by saying we really need to to think about this as scholars, as citizens, because on the one hand, I would say as a historian, I should have been more prepared to understand the role of misinformation because, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And throughout the past, when human societies have been shaken by by the the threats and realities of infectious disease, misinformation has always been a part of it and that's really everywhere when you look back whether it's the plague in Thebes and in Oedipus Rex one of the great Greek tragedies right through the Black Death and think of all the the scapegoating that's that's always been a part of it so there is something about the history of disease and the way societies respond that should have led us to maybe expect more but I also uh, the misinformation would be a major dimension of going through this pandemic together. But I will say too, it has also been one of those things that just living through it has, has certainly caught me totally off guard. I mean, it's shocking and it's so frustrating and maybe that's even sometimes putting it lightly to, to see the, the reactions to, to different measures that we need to take to, to control the pandemic, to keep ourselves and others healthy. And I think obviously it's easy to blame technology and to blame, you know, social media companies. And there's definitely no way to explain this, the, the role of misinformation in the pandemic without reckoning with, with the kind of communication technologies that we have and that are still very new. But I also think it's not a purely technological problem. I think it has a lot to do with underlying questions of, of social trust and, and authority and, and you know, who people believe and who they don't believe. So I think this is, this is actually one of the most important questions that we can think about. And going forward, thinking about the next pandemic that, that our societies need to grapple with. Because if you look at the big picture of this pandemic, we, we really globally, 
did a very good job coming up with technical solutions. I mean, the vaccines are amazing and they're beyond what anybody thought was possible. So the science side of, of our collective response to COVID was really astonishing. It's really been the social and behavioral, the more human side of it, misinformation, trust, distrust in, in the United States. And really in a lot of places, the, the response has really been a, a failure. And so I would hate to see as societies go forward to see us only put billions of dollars into biomedical research and genetic research, the pharmaceutical research, all of which is important and needs to go forward. But I think we've been reminded that, you know, the scientific solutions enough uh, alone are not enough. And misinformation is a big reason why. And it just feels to me like we're not really addressing that, which we have to, to be ready for the next pandemic, because there will be another one, whether it's next month, let's hope not, or next generation. Yes, exactly. I mean, even the most brilliant innovations and inventions have to be used by people. They have to be understood. And, and that's how, you know, as we look at climate change and everything, that we have to use it. Otherwise, it's just an, a notion. And speaking of truth, I mean, it seems like that's another metaphorically a, a disease that people want to believe what they they think their opinions, can, they can turn their opinions into truth. And this is a real issue we have now. And I also, I, I wonder what your thoughts are about there are a lot of different stories and, and views about what the possible origins of COVID was and whether it could have originated in the lab. I, I know it's only speculation, but then that became very clouded and along uh, political lines as well. Yeah. And I mean, I should say I'm, I'm not an expert in, in that question. I can only speak from my point of view as a, as a citizen, but also somebody who kind of lives and works in the world of, of disease and infectious disease and health. And my, my approach to something like this really is that you ought to be open-minded to these questions. And I think ultimately the, the only way to get to the truth is by, by being willing to, to look at the evidence and letting viewpoints be expressed, even if they're wrong. And I think, I think it was actually probably a mistake to try and shut down discussion about that in a way that was too rapid and not really based on on the evidence. With that said, my own instincts are that that it probably is a, a completely natural disease emergence. And I say that sort of based on my priors, my the things I bring into the the, the question, disease evolution, microbes are pervasive, dangerous microbes are pervasive in nature. Evolution is constant. And it was it, it, very likely that an RNA virus of zoonotic origins would eventually adapt the ability to um, infect the human respiratory tract and cause a new pandemic in our very globally interconnected world. Now, none of that excludes the potential that it was either partly emerged from a lab after human alteration of a viral genome. doesn't exclude that possibility. It certainly doesn't exclude the possibility that a lab that was collecting viral genomes allowed one to escape in basically its natural form. But all in all, I, I suspect that it's very plausible that an animal virus adapted the ability to, to infect humans in nature because, say, that's my prior set of assumptions about the world because that's happening all the time. I can tell you, I was having dinner with a virologist about six months before 
COVID probably emerged in humans. And we were talking about threats to humanity. And I was sort of talking about how dangerous the influenza virus is, which I still believe. I think influenza, the way it mutates, makes it particularly prone to, to be able to, to pose a threat to humans. And I still think one of the bigger biological threats we could face as a species is comes from influenza virus. But he responded to me, yeah, but keep your eyes on the coronaviruses. There's something about these quickly evolving RNA viruses that are very common in bats that seem to cross species very easily. And it's kept happening. I mean, there are there are at least seven coronaviruses that we know can infect humans. And we know none of the others were made in a lab. They simply are out there in large number. They evolve really quickly. And they've shown a kind of ability to, to acquire the tools that they need to attach to human cells, to invade human cells, and so on. So, so I think we don't know with, with certainty right now the origins of COVID-19. I, for my part, would say we should be open-minded and look at the evidence. But as somebody who, who spent a lot of time studying where um, diseases come from, it just seems like a, a very likely um, scenario that, that a virus, and particularly this kind of virus, a coronavirus, um, emerged from a zoonotic reservoir naturally by evolution. And, you know, I just hope we were able to get enough information to, to kind of build a, a strong fact-based consensus around that. And that's, that's possible. There's some things we're never going to know, but there's good work going on trying really hard to, to go back and do basically contact tracing on the, the very earliest cases. And that may show where, where it really came from. Um, so hopefully, hopefully we're able to, to get good answers that, that command a broad enough consensus around what the what the truth is and and let us move forward. And if it if it was a virus that escaped from a, a lab after having adapted to humans, that's unfortunate. But if that's what the facts are, it shouldn't make us shy of doing biological research. It really only underscores that that we have to research infectious diseases, we have to do it with very strong safety and security protocols. But hopefully, hopefully the truth really comes out in a way that that people will at least enough people will will be able to to get behind. Exactly. I think it just gave certain people and maybe as well a pause for thought because of the the placement of the lab. That was a, a thing that would, you know, people draw conclusions. But yeah. it's just about how we should be safe. And and what are your views on, I mean, you talk about how, you know, cities are a place for infectious disease to thrive. Also what we eat and also uh, displacement of uh wildlife in forests. And so what are your views on those things? How has that maybe changed your behaviors? Well, I was a germphobe before before COVID and before I wrote Plagues Upon the Earth. Probably that's why it, it, it interested me at some level. But, you know, there's, there's always trade-offs. There's just in life and disease preparedness and People individually and collectively have to try and make rational, thoughtful decisions that balance their own interests and the interests of others in a way that's that's reasonable and fair. And I think we we all face that in our own lives. I mean, you know, there's sometimes I wish I knew less than I know because I love raw oysters. I love a rare steak every now and then. And there's risks you take anytime you 
you eat raw or undercooked meat. Now, luckily, you're you're really only posing a a danger to yourself. But there are other decisions that we have to make. You know, just to take an example, I think it's unfortunately gotten politicized, like masking, and we just need to to be able to think about those questions in a way that that's thoughtful, that realizes there are trade offs. I mean, I, if anybody tells me they hate a mask, I can say I. <laughs> I get it. I'm right there with you, but you're making decisions about your own behavior that affect yourself, but also um, affect others. That's one of the things that makes public health so hard is that they're often very hard to see effects um, of one person on another, of one society on another that make grappling with public health challenges really, really hard. But also I think is one of the reasons why we need things like history. We need the humanities. To, to respond to public health challenges because it's not, it's about really understanding your place in the world, your responsibility to others, the way things are connected. So I, I hope that's one way in which, which even historians can contribute to public health awareness and thinking. Yes, that's so important. You also brought up the humanities. And so you're also a professor of the classics. And I'm just wondering a little bit about your personal journey and what drew you to that and why you find it endlessly fascinating. Well, I do. And I was very lucky. I came to my local university. And when I did, I had really limited experience and no knowledge um, of the, the fact that there were people who studied history for a living. And I had a really great teacher, just a really dynamic classroom teacher who had a passion for Roman history and was able to communicate that and to, to show why it was important, why it was inspiring and interesting. And I could only describe it as like falling in love. I just completely fell in love with history and knew that that's what I wanted to do. And so I would have never expected that, that that would be the course that life would take, but that's just how it works. And I was lucky to get to find a way to go into a graduate program and have great mentors and find a way to become a researcher of Roman history. I am I am a expert in Roman history. I love the Greeks too. I'm in a classics department, so I have to say nice things about the Greeks. But to me, Roman civilization is endlessly fascinating. It's so rich. There's so many ways in which it's both similar and different from ours. It's shaped um, our world in, in ways that are pervasive, sometimes visible, sometimes invisible. It's, I think, amazing to try and puzzle out. I and mean, a lot of being a historian is kind of trying to, to find a, a puzzle piece in a puzzle where, you know, we're missing a lot of pieces and trying to interpret and see what was there. So I love the, the challenge of that and just the the wonder of, of being part of um, a profession that over centuries has tried to, to understand and reconstruct the, the human past. And I think history is really important to understand where we are. I mean, even if our world is very different, we need a story of how we got here and, and how it's changed and what our role in it has been. Yes, I, I completely agree. I mean, I serve on the advisory board of the European Conference for the Humanities, and I believe that Wonderful. humanities... It's, the, it's really the glue that holds society together. And as you say, helps us understand who we are. It is. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm passionate about it. I think that it's dangerous if we think of education in too instrumental a way, in too vocational a way. And obviously it's important that people 
are educated in ways that give them skills that are empowering and make the world better and have an impact. That's good. We want our students to, to get good jobs and go on and, and be successful. But that is a very limited view of what education is. It's the humanistic side where you're learning who you are, what your values are, what you care about, what your responsibilities are, that really makes for a, a fulfilling life. And so, yeah, the, the humanities are, are sometimes sort of seen as a, a luxury or an elective or something on the side of a real education, but that vocational side and the, the humanistic side should, should always go together. So circling back to Mia's point on where COVID originated, when everyone found out that it had originated in China, there was a large increase in Asian hate, or even now, there's a movement called Stop Asian Hate. I was wondering, why are people of different races treated differently when diseases are spread, and possibly why people look for scapegoats to blame for the spread of disease? Yeah, it's it's so fascinating. And I mentioned the Greek tragedy, Oedipus Rex, Oedipus the King, which is kind of like the the quintessential tragedy. And I was reading it recently and thinking, you know, here was a world where people didn't understand infectious disease. So they don't actually understand what causes a plague, but there's a city with a plague and they, they believe that, that this, you know, that if they can just find out what caused it and drive them out, that everything will be okay. And to me, you know, that was mind blowing to read. I hadn't read it since before COVID and just thinking about like how that's a common thread in the history of disease of misunderstanding and of the need to to find a scapegoat because I don't know if it's you know part of human psychology or what but but people somehow when when there's fear and and pain look for human humans to blame and in some ways that that's you know not just not how it works that's the the reality is that that infectious diseases are caused by microbes that are the product of evolution and that don't care at all they don't have an ideology they don't have an ethnicity the material world it's nature and so there's something unfortunate that that we want to assign blame to people but it really does run like a constant thread through the, the history of infectious disease in the the black death in the 14th century, there's massive anti-Semitism. So many people in Europe blame Jews for the infectious disease outbreak of the bubonic plague. And it's one of the worst plagues in history. And it incited um, hatred and violence and, and scapegoating. And you know, it's it's painful to, to read about these histories, but I think it's important to as well because it can it can provide a kind of check and a perspective that that hopefully will will appeal to to people and you know the anti-semitism in the 14th century wasn't invented at the black death the black death kind of acted on these underlying prejudices assumptions you know fissures within society and i think we can see parallels in, in our own world that you know anti-asian discrimination and assumptions even didn't start in 2020. It's just that the, the pandemic amplifies those prejudices, activates them, energizes them in ways that weren't possible before you had the, the pandemic. So I think, I think you, can, you can actually learn a lot from thinking historically, and hopefully it, 
it can provide people perspective that that helps them realize that that there's there's tendencies in a lot of historical societies to to blame people and particularly groups of people for for diseases that are really natural phenomena so i think it's another example of the, the what reason why perspective is is so important like i can't imagine if we were only thinking COVID 19 was like the the sample size of one this has been going on in some ways with both similarities and differences but from the beginning and so i think having that perspective helps us see what's unique and then what's what's utterly predictable in the course of a pandemic Yes, it's so interesting to go back into history and really in your uh, book, uh, Plagues Upon the Earth, you do unspool this, like the history of slavery and colonialism and capitalism and, and, and dis how disease runs through that, if you'd like to expand upon it. Yeah, well, I, thank you. I mean, I, as a, as a historian, I found those some of the hardest, but also to me, some of the most important chapters to try and grapple with, because when you think about the, the big forces that, that have shaped the emergence of the modern world, infectious diseases are sort of always there. And the, the challenge is sort of to figure out why and what's the cause and what's the effect, what's the significance. But, but infectious diseases are always a useful prism through which to, to look at human history. And so there's a few different major um, themes that I draw and draw, draw out. One is is pretty familiar for, for people who study history is that when Europeans arrive in the new world following the, the transatlantic crossing of Christopher Columbus, it really begins what's called the Columbian exchange, which we can think of as a really large scale, multifaceted exchange, living things of humans, animals, plants, which have a major impact all over the world. I mean, think of maize or, or what we call corn, which is an old world crop that becomes huge throughout Europe and Asia. Um, you know, tomatoes, you can go on and on um, of things that it's hard to imagine those weren't there in Europe and Asia. Um, in antiquity, they haven't always had potatoes and tomatoes and corn, but microbes are a part of that too. And they're traveling both ways once you have the old world and the new world connected. One of the, the really important dimensions of this is that Europeans carry across the Atlantic a huge number of, of pathogenic microbes that were unfamiliar in the new world. And so as part of the, the process of encounter and colonization, you have the exchange of, of microbes. And so that's, let's say that's been kind of a familiar theme and I try and do my best to give a bigger global perspective on what we've learned about that over the, the last couple of decades. A, a dimension of it that I think is maybe less familiar is that people have sort of told this story as a Europe and the Americas story, but Africa is a big part of the, the emergence of the modern world and the rise of a, a trade system that encompasses Europe, the Americas, and Africa. And the slave trade is a huge part of that. The movement of specifically tropical um, crops and diseases both ways across the Atlantic is really important and has often been, not completely, but, but too often underestimated. And so the movement of malaria and yellow fever 
and yaws and hookworm, all of these diseases that are really important from a global perspective that have maybe not got the, the attention they deserve are a part of an exchange in this time period that's caught up with empires and the emergence of a early capitalist global trading system. And the third kind of piece of this that, that I find fascinating really is this chapter in the long history of globalization. So globalization, we you know think of as a McDonald's in Moscow or whatever. It's very modern corporate global capitalism. You know, the, the same music, you can hear the, the same pop music all over the world. And that's just a very interesting and very recent chapter in this really deep story of how different human societies have become interconnected over time. And part of globalization, that doesn't mean globalization is bad. Human connection brings tons of benefits and you can't go backwards. But, but it is just a fact that when societies become more interconnected, it has effects for disease and health. And in the, the early modern period, the world is quickly becoming more interconnected. And that encompasses the entire planet. And that means you start to see these disease outbreaks all over the planet. And so one of the things I sort of point out is smallpox, we, we've kind of got the history of smallpox wrong and sort of think of it maybe as a European disease that then they take to the Americas. We have no idea really where smallpox comes from. What's interesting is it is a far more important disease in the 16th and 17th century in China, in Europe, in Africa, and then in the new world. So, you know, right when it's arriving in, in Mexico City, it's having devastating effects across the entire old world. So uh, I think it's a really interesting and important chapter in this bigger story of how globalization is one of the, the driving forces in human connectivity, but also the connectivity of our health. My name is Marley Hinchberger and I am an Associate Interviews Producer for The Creative Process. As someone who lives with high-risk individuals, I appreciate and admire how Kyle Harper approaches sensitive topics in a way that is non-judgmental, yet also informative, open-minded, and opens other avenues of thinking that aren't always so mainstream. I think that being knowledgeable in today's age is something so important, as well as looking back at historic contexts. Being able to think critically and wade through all the information that is out there today is something that is so beneficial to society. And seeing how Kyle Harper is able to discuss these topics with clarity and wisdom is something that I strive to do and something that I hope others strive to do as well. And as someone whose primary study is in the humanities, I think it's so important to be able to see the humanistic side of whatever you're learning. And how Kyle Harper describes the humanities is how I feel everyone should feel. We need to be able to understand sciences, but will drive a fulfilling life is understanding humans and why we do the things that we do. Understanding that our world is forever globalizing and is more connected than ever thanks to technology and to be able to understand how we become globalized is something so important and it helps people today understand how we got where we are. How Kyle Harper talks about globalization and how disease is such a big part of history. I'm thinking of everything that I own and every sickness that I've had and how it probably came from somewhere else and how it has affected the history of our world and the history of the land that I'm on. I really think that everyone should look at what they own, what they have, and all the sicknesses that they've had and how much it has impacted others and where it came from. 
I think that understanding other people, other cultures, and how they approach topics is something so important and is so humanistic. Being able to discuss these hard topics is something that people struggle to do, myself included, and I think being able to talk about these topics and being able to do so in a way that is open-minded, like Kyle Harper has talked about, is something that will drive humanity in a way that is more positive and more open-minded to others. I really appreciate Kyle Harper and how he speaks on these topics and how he discusses how disease is such an important part of our life and will always be such an important part of our life. I really learned a lot from him and I think that I will continue to try and understand disease and its course in our human history. And in your research, you know, there's different approaches to diseases and, and, and medical treatments. What interests you about different cultural responses to disease? Yeah, I mean, it, there's there's really interesting questions about different cultural responses over time and space. So I'll give you one, one example that's a really interesting question. And I, I find it interesting because I don't fully know what I think, but we think of public health as a very modern and frankly, Western European concept that sort of starts in the 19th century. But when you think beyond Europe or when you think before the, the 19th century, there may not be the word public health in quite that phrasing or configuration, but different cultures have thought about hygiene, cleanliness, health, collective responses to health and disease in ways that actually really shape human health. And so it's a very, I think it's a very open question. Like do, do the Romans, the people that I spent a lot of my life studying, do they have a concept of, of public health? How did their culture think of the, the relationship of one person's health to another? And what was the political approach to that? So, so I do think that, that different cultural responses really can frame human behavior in ways that really shape health and disease. And so for like the Romans, you know, they don't have, a, a con they have concepts of water and they probably are drinking actually relatively cleaner water than most people who live in big cities in pre-modern times but they don't have, they don't build systems to get rid of human waste. And so their, their health is really impaired by, by that reality. So it's interesting to think like, what are the, the cultural framings that, that shape their perception of the body and hygiene and the political response that's needed to, to live together? So I, I think there's lots of ways it's interesting. Yes. And then if you go, because we've done some interviews with like groups uh, that work in like the Amazon, this is, and I don't know if that's something that you, you know, it's very hard to have exposure to them, but, you know, different uh, ways of looking at the, the human body and, and nutrition as you know, preventative medicine and, and all these and different cultures, let's say in America, I, there's more of an acceptance of medicine after the fact, although of course there's huge wellness movements everywhere, but less of you know, knowing where our food comes from, they, you know, it's part of industrialization. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, that's right. I mean, nutrition is a, is a huge factor. I mean, it's never just the, the microbes themselves. It's the way that that interacts with, with what nutrition, the, the body's underlying health, the domestic environments and habitats, you know, all of that goes into to health. The, the particular microbes that affect people's health is only one dimension. It's a really interesting one. It's it's one that that I've written a lot about, but it's it's not the whole picture of of health by any means. 
Yes, and as you, you know, looking at this long history of disease and some of that you discussed before, like the misinformation or just not understanding, you know, you have to come up with some kind of explanation for why these things happen. You say scapegoating or whatever. What were some of the more interesting or just unusual interpretations of the different plagues upon the earth? Yeah, I mean, certainly one of the one of the interesting and big threads is apocalypticism. And I think you see this in a broad range of cultures, East Asian, South Asian, Near Eastern, European cultures that in different ways see plagues in terms of sort of either the health of the planet or the end of an age. And these are these are events that people see in these cosmic terms. It can be easy to, to see how they could have thought that the gods are angry. And that's a common religious goes even back before Christianity that the pagan religions of the ancient Mediterranean think of plagues as an expression of divine anger. So I, I think the, the kind of religious and apocalyptic framing of, of plagues is one of the really important sort of cultural frameworks that people have fit them into. Your book talks about how disease can destabilize our environment. And I know that right at the beginning of March of 2020, people were very excited on how dolphins were coming back into Italy's canals and how carbon emissions were down. And I was wondering, could you explain how disease destabilizes our environment and if there's any environmental impact of disease? Yeah, that's interesting. The I think for the most part, it's probably a, a kind of COVID-19 specific thing. The, the earth is healing. And I'm, I'm not optimistic that the, the solution to our global climate challenges <laughs> lies in infectious disease. I think it just, it reveals how if you s- slow down human impact, you kind of tap the brakes, which is what COVID-19 did. It tapped the brakes on global consumption, energy use, supply chain, distribution, and even just like barely tapping the brakes on what humans are doing to the planet, in some cases caused these sort of visible ways in which, you know, the earth starts healing or or just some return of of certain species or decline of of carbon emissions. But there really um, aren't too many perfect parallels with that because we haven't had the kind of disruptive, globally shocking, sudden pandemic like this for the last 50, 60 years. And that last 50, 60 years is the time period during which humanity's utter, um, you know, pervasively impactful relationship to the planet has, has gotten so massive. But that said, there are a few examples I can think of. One, I I don't particularly believe, but I think it's interesting that some scientists have argued that when the Europeans arrive in the Americas and among other things, introduce pathogens that kill so many people that there's decreased population and the forests expand again. And that there's this like connection between disease-driven depopulation and reforestation. And that's probably, there's probably some truth to that. People have even argued that this acts as a, uh, a carbon sink. So of course, when you have more greenery, they're gonna, it's gonna, plants are gonna suck carbon out of the atmosphere. And people have argued that what's called the little ice age, 
which is this really pretty cold period in like the, the 17th century broadly, is actually caused by depopulation, reforestation, carbon, you know, suck from the atmosphere by the plants and cooling, which is, I think, not the, the consensus view, but it's been very seriously argued and it's not crazy by any means, um, but it's really wild to think about how interconnected all of that is. I do think there's very good evidence from ice core samples for the impact of disease. And so ice cores are, you know, these long drilled samples, these, these columns of ice that are extracted from places, mostly like Greenland and Antarctica, where you have relatively thicker ice sheets that, that reflect sort of an annual layer by layer reflection, because these are precipitate that came from the sky and reflect to some extent the chemistry of what's up there in the atmosphere. And they're very important paleoclimate records. So they're, they're one really important way we can sort of trace long-scale changes in atmospheric chemistry. Ice cores are amazing, but they're also interesting for historians. And actually people have, have argued that in Greenland, for instance, you can see the impact of some of the, the historic plagues. So like the Antonine plague of the second century, which is one that I study, maybe an ancestral smallpox disease, but we don't really totally know, does kill a lot of people, shuts down Roman mining. It's so disruptive that the Romans stop smelting iron ore and extracting silver from Spain, and that you can actually see the, the crash that's caused by depopulation. Another study looks at a glacier, a glacial ice core from the Alps, and found that when the Black Death happened, background levels of lead pollution just crashed, which is crazy. It tells you that humans are, even in pre-industrial times, putting quite a bit of lead into the environment. So those are really interesting parallels to your, your reference to these some of these observations people have made in COVID. They're really, I was right and thought of that, but really interesting parallels from the past where we have these cool scientific records that show sometimes actually the plagues do lead to dramatic disruption of human impact on the environment. Yeah, it's it's like the earth telling us, as you say, to, to tap yeah. on the brakes. But speaking of a buried history, we know that organisms can be dormant for hundreds of years and come to life, like diatoms and things that we think that are dead can can be reanimated, I guess, through this global warming. And, and that's one fear, one unknown that kind of, it troubles me to, to wonder about what might emerge. What are you curious about that might, new pathogens, what might emerge into our, our disease pool? Yeah. And I mean, the melting of sort of tundra that can, can release things that have been frozen for a long time is, is interesting. And I think some of the bigger questions really have to do with human environmental impact and climate change. So this is, this is actually something that needs a lot more work. It's, it's actually a little disturbing to, to say we, we don't know what the effects of climate change on infectious disease emergence are going to be. We just know there's going to be some. And there is a lot of good work going on, but this seems like the sort of thing where the, the amount of funding and resources that are devoted to this are not equal to the, the potential impacts because we, we need to know a lot more about what's going to happen under various scenarios. But we know that the, the earth systems 
are so complicated and so interconnected that when you change the climate, it's going to change everything else. It's going to change biodiversity in myriad ways. And just to, to take one kind of concrete example, a significant number of major human diseases are transmitted by disease vectors that are arthropods, often insects like mosquitoes. And mosquitoes have very often have very strong sensitivity to environmental conditions. And so certain mosquitoes are adapted to live in certain places. There are some mosquitoes that are more cosmopolitan, but a lot of mosquitoes are pretty, pretty finely tuned to, to certain ranges of temperature and moisture, other environmental factors. So as the climate changes rapidly, it's, it's rolling the dice. I mean, it's going to change the distribution and abundance of disease vectors like mosquitoes that carry diseases like malaria, dengue fever, chikungunya fever, Zika virus, and so on. So as the climate changes, it's going to affect animal health, human health, insects, microbes. It, the planet and its health is very, very interconnected. So it's an area where I think hopefully we can, as a, as a global society, invest human resources and intelligence to try and figure out what what's likely to happen and how can you mitigate that as part of the, the bigger response to trying to control environmental. Yes. And so, you know, as you reflect on climate change and disease and the history of civilization, the challenges we face in the future, kind of world we're living for the next generation, how would you like some of our current systems and behaviors to evolve? Yeah. I mean, as we were as we were saying, I mean it's it's all interconnected. So you can't expect to to control the the future of public health without really thinking about the the future of the environment more broadly. And you know, if think about the the challenges of of global development. And we need to remember that infectious freedom from infectious disease is not a privilege that's universally shared. And so in order to, to continue to improve global public health, it's vitally important that, that people in poor countries have access to, to economic opportunities, economic growth, and economic, you know, human well-being is both a, a question of social development in a very holistic sense, the people have jobs that provide adequate food and clean water, as well as the elimination of, of dangerous microbes. And so the question is, how do, how do societies continue to develop in a way that's, that's globally equitable and sustainable? And that's, you know, that's a really one of the wicked hardest problems on the on the planet is how do we um, continue to to experience growth without having carbon emissions that make growth impossible that continue to, to hold societies in poverty and that imperil human health and you you know health is not some kind of isolated problem that we can think of apart from broader questions of social development globalization as well as environmental sustainability. So in, in really profound ways, the, the challenges of carbon um, 
based energy is is connected to creating a sustainably healthy planet. Yes, and you're you're a teacher, and as you reflect on teachers and life lessons that were important to you, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Well, I have to, I have to say, I'm a historian, so I I'm really committed and am right in the conviction that understanding the past is a really fundamental dimension. What it means to be human, of living a rich and responsible life as a as a citizen, and to me that was you know just life changing to discover that. I thought history was something interesting or something that you had to know to pass a test. And I think it's so much more than that. I think it's really, you know, it's like memory. Um, part of knowing who you are, your, your selfhood is really um, put together by your experiences and the way that you synthesize those and understand them. And that's true for us collectively as it is for us as individuals that knowing where we've come from as a species, knowing how we got here, is fundamental to knowing where we are and of course to choosing where we go. So I would just argue for, for sort of the, the existential importance of, of history as a, as a way of understanding ourselves. Oh, very well put. I couldn't agree more. So thank you, Kyle Harper, for helping us understand these plagues upon the earth, the history and impact of diseases, how we got here as a species, so that we can better see where we want to go. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much. One Plant Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview is conducted by Mia Funk and Marley Hinchberger with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast was Marley Hinchberger. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>